Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get going. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful to be here today to study and to get into your word about what you have done for us and the journey to the cross. And so, Lord, we praise you for your sacrifice. We never want to take that for granted. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been studying the, the Jewish festivals. And there's seven of these Jewish festivals, and they really do parallel, not just the festivals, the life of Christ. As a matter of fact, if you go through the book of John, uh, we read that the, John covers the seven festivals. John also has the seven I Ams. And John has a way of just kind of journeying with Jesus these festivals. This today is probably the most well-known of all the festivals uh, because I believe it was Jesus taking this Passover festival and he was using this to prepare not only the disciples and the early church, I believe he's having this last supper for all of us, preparing us for his journey on the cross. Eric, let me read the words from you uh, from a book that I read. And in this book, uh, it's called The Feast of Our Lord by William W. Francis. He says this, For the Christian, the Passover celebration recalls the sacrificial atoning, the death of Christ, our Paschal Lamb. By understanding this ritual and understanding the symbolism of this celebration, Christians can more fully understand the Apostle Paul's affirmation, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The Passover, the Last Supper. Now, if you're like me, when I was a kid, we had this famous painting. It wasn't actually a painting. It was a paint by numbers my sister did for my mom for Christmas. But it was this painting of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. So I'd like to look at that for just a second. And there's a couple of things about that painting that, to be honest with you, are bogus. Okay, here's the first one. Um, notice the disciples' complexion in Jesus. Lily white Europeans. Okay, that is not what they look like. Okay, so we know that. Here's the second thing. Notice how beautiful this long ornate table was. And we know from Scripture that's not the way it was at all. Matter of fact, it looked more like this. It's very intimate. And uh, they reclined at this table. Now, that's a big deal because they drew close to Jesus. It wasn't Jesus looking down one. It is like the Walton Mountains deal. You know, they're looking down one another. And if you notice in those early paintings of Jesus, those medieval times, you notice Jesus always looks like he had a hair dryer. He sails perfect and it's windblown. That's not Jesus. Remember, we talked about this. He walked 20,000 miles, 20,000 miles in the sun. So Jesus was, uh, I really truly, he was a man's man. Now, when you think about reclining at a table, let me tell you about a, a restaurant here in town. It's a Turkish restaurant on 4th Street, and uh, uh, I want to show you a picture of my daughter. This is my daughter, Danielle, and her fiancé, and uh, Todd Edwards and Nicole, there's a whole group of us, we went to eat at this restaurant. Now, here's what's interesting about the restaurant. You can eat like normal folks at a table, or you can eat reclining, and my daughter's like, oh, Dad, you need to experience reclining and eating. Okay, number one, if you have tight jeans, don't do that. I could barely get down, and I was with Todd Edwards, and I thought I looked, like, stupid. He looked worse than me. I mean, to get up, I mean, it was just embarrassing, and I'm like, I can't believe people enjoy this, but when I think about reclining at the table with those disciples, I think it was a way for Jesus to say, I want you to hear every word. Because this is more than a Passover meal. 
This is so much more than traditionally eating with one another at the Passover meal. Remember, Jesus had spent at least three years with those early disciples. So they had been through a Passover with Jesus. This isn't just a Passover meal. This truly is the Last Supper. It means everything because it's the journey to the cross. Matter of fact, Luke 22, verses 14 and 15, it says this, And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, now catch this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, what? Before I suffer. See, in the mind of Jesus, he's already taking steps to the cross, and he's preparing them to take steps to the cross. But if you look at the Passover meal, just generally, there's so much symbolism there. Uh, The fact of when they celebrated it in the spring, the fact that they had unleavened bread that they ate, which signified uh, the Israelites as they were in haste and leaving. Uh, They had the youngest child, which I love. Uh, Families could even come together during the Passover, and the youngest child would ask a series of four questions about the history of Israel. And the oldest patriarch male would answer those questions every year at that Passover. Now, what if you did that at your Thanksgiving meal? You get everybody together, and your youngest child asks the father, Father, tell us. I have four questions. Tell us about our family. Wouldn't those be interesting questions, you know? But wouldn't it be great to actually have something traditionally that we're sharing with one another? If you're like my family, the only tradition is, Let's eat as fast as we can so we can watch boring football games. You know, that's, that's kind of our tradition. That's not this tradition. This is a tradition where they want to know the history. And then in that Passover meal, what was the most prominent thing that they ate? Anyone? What was the most prominent thing? It was the lamb. An unblemished, perfect lamb that was slain for that meal. Can you imagine that night as they're eating the lamb and they're listening to the words of Jesus? I think it took them probably weeks and months to figure out he wasn't talking about the lamb. He was talking about himself, about his life being sacrificed for them and his life being sacrificed for us. So this morning, I thought what we'd do is we would look at this this amazing meal called the Last Supper and to take it from the table to the foot of the cross and simply to look at it from a two totally different perspectives. The first is, how did John, on this journey to the cross, perceive what was going on with Jesus? And then, what do you think Mary was thinking when she was there at the foot of the cross? So I'm going to take the perspective from John. Claudia is going to come up, and she's going to share a mother's perspective of the cross The journey to the cross, John's perspective. In John 13, look at verses 1 and 2. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own that were in the world. And now he showed them the full extent of his love. Now notice how Jesus demonstrated the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot Simon to betray Jesus. And then Jesus went on after that. Anybody remember what he did? He washed their feet. I want you to think about that. A few years ago, I was at a Promise Keepers in St. Louis. There's a huge stadium, and the speaker was Max Locato. And Max Locato was sharing in his life 
that St. Louis was a very special place because he said, I was preparing to go on the missions field. And as I was preparing, I was also struggling with, God, do you really want me to do this with my life? He says, I just didn't feel significant. I didn't feel valuable. But he said, I had this mentor and he kept just pouring into me, Max, God has a special plan for you. Max, have you ever thought about using your writing skills? And he's like, I'm just a poor kid. My dad's an oil man. No, I don't think God has big plans for me. He goes, no, man. And he just kept pouring into him. Max Lucado said he had no idea how close I was to walking away from the ministry, and he saved me by loving me unconditionally. And then he turned around, and you didn't realize it, that guy was sitting right there. And he said, I've never publicly thanked you for what you've done for me. And I'm going to ask you to do something that it's the only way that I can possibly show my gratitude. Would you take your shoes and socks off? And he did. And he took a towel and a basin of water, and he washed his feet. I'm on tell you right now, there wasn't a dry eye in that stadium. As they watched Max Lucado washing this gentleman's feet. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a foot washing ceremony, but I'll tell you, if you have, when you go into it, your perception is there's nothing more humbling than washing somebody's feet. And let me tell you, there is. You know what it is? It's letting somebody wash your feet. Matter of fact, I'm so proud of one of our guys, Jim Graham, a few weeks ago at our Discipleship Revolution on Wednesday night. Uh, Jim had the teaching right out of this text. And so he decided that all the men would wash one another's feet. Now, there's nine tables of men. So I want to show you what it looked like. So Jim set this up, and we didn't let the guys know ahead of time it was happening. You know why? We'd had like four guys show up. You know what I'm saying? So they showed up, and every table of men, they washed one another's feet. You think they'll ever forget that? No. Do you think they would ever forget what Jesus did for them? When Jesus took that towel, and can you only imagine as Jesus is washing her feet? And do you understand why Peter would say, Lord, there's no way that I'm going to let you do that? Matter of fact, it's interesting. I was doing a little research, and uh, the rabbis of that day, the Hebrew rabbis, they actually had a kind of a code of ethics for those that were following them, their learners. And the code of ethics, interestingly, there was if you're in a situation uh, to wash someone's feet, you do not lower yourself to wash someone's feet. You know why? Only a servant did that. Matter of fact, do you remember when the Pharisee had Jesus over and uh, Jesus was rebuking him and he said, uh, you know, when I walked in your home, not even a servant, no one washed my feet. Isn't that interesting? What do you think Jesus was trying to teach the disciples that night by washing their feet? You know what I think it was? Leadership. 101. You want to be a leader? It's not about a title. It's not about power. It's about serving. We've all had bosses. How many of you here have ever had a boss that you didn't like? Raise your hand if you've ever had a boss you didn't like. Don't look at them, but anyway, we've all had probably, but I want you to think about the bosses that you've had over the years that had the greatest impact on you. You know who they are for me? It's the bosses that do the things behind the scenes that nobody sees. It's the bosses that serve. Isn't that true? It's not about a title. It's just that they serve. You want to be a leader? You want to be the most influential leader? It's not about what you do in front of others. It's what you do when nobody else is watching. It's 
serving. And there's no greater example of servanthood than this. Jesus washed their feet. And then they went from that upper room and they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's what's interesting. I always wondered, transitionally, what did they do? Well, we know that. It tells us in Mark 14, 26. Do you know what they did? They sang hymns. Isn't that cool? They were singing hymns as Jesus was going to the cross. Now, I don't know how many of you have brought friends to church, friends who very rarely ever go to church. But if you've never really gone to church much and you just show up at church, let's be honest. Isn't church kind of weird? I mean, seriously, you don't go to an IU ball game and they'd say, hey, we got six or seven songs we're going to sing. One of them is about Bobby Knight, real catchy tune. You know, so anyway, everybody's like, oh, that sounds weird. Well, you come into church, and even if people can't sing, now I'm not saying some of you can't sing. Well, honestly, yeah, some of you can't sing, okay? And I'm right there with you. But you know what? We don't sing because it's American Idol. Why do we sing? Man, we are lifting up praises to Jesus Christ. And if you think about the Last Supper, here's what I love. It is a perfect picture of the church. Why do I say that? Well, look what they did. They served one another. They broke bread together. They listened to the words of Jesus. And then what did they do? They sang. I would have loved, I would have loved to have been there to hear what these men were singing. And do you think as they were singing, making their way to the garden, they had any idea? This is probably the last time before Jesus goes to the cross. I think if it was, it would have changed even how they sang that day. But when they entered the Garden of Gethsemane, this is interesting. That Hebrew word, the garden, means oil press. Uh, there was an olive garden at the base of the garden, but it means oil press. In other words, pressure. How do you get olive oil? It's sheer pressure. And there is no example greater than this. You want to talk about pressure? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know from the text that Jesus, not once, not twice, three times, was praying, was carrying this burden. And where were the disciples? They were asleep. Did you ever wonder why they slept? Luke 22, I've always wondered this. Luke 22, 45, it says, they were exhausted by sorrow. Imagine the last week with Jesus. You want to talk about a roller coaster? Think about the kids today and the Hosanna. They had literally seen Jesus, thousands of people chanting Hosanna. They're having this intimate meal with Jesus, and yet, like no other Passover before, he's saying some in, just intense things about death. And now as they're making their way to the garden, and they see how he's agonizing, everything was changing, and they were exhausted by sorrow. I think from that point forward that that garden would be a place that would literally make them nauseous every time they got near it. Now, my guess is, if not all of you, most of you have places like that in your life, places that you even get close to, and you almost get sick at your stomach. Uh, the first church that I got fired at Every time I drove near that town, and they had a great barbecue place, I can tell you, I almost get nauseous. You guys know what I'm talking about? Or somebody who really hurt me, maybe, and I even get near their house, and I get nauseous. Now imagine this place. This was truly a place 
of agony. Matter of fact, it's interesting in Mark 14, 36, as Jesus was pleading with his heavenly father, it's the phrase Abba. Now, you all know Abba doesn't mean heavenly father. You know what Abba means, doesn't it? It's daddy. It's as intimate. This isn't Jesus saying, oh, heavenly father. This is Jesus saying, dad, I don't know if I can handle this cup of suffering. That's the depth of the pain in the garden. You want to talk about pressure. That was pressure. And then literally they walked with Jesus and watched Jesus walk away from them to the cross. The soldiers came. You know the story. You've seen it. You've heard it. But every year we need to be reminded of what he has done for us. I can't imagine what that was like. I can't imagine... Uh, the scripture tells us in Luke, or excuse me, in John 19, verse 25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciples took her, this disciple took her into his home. I wonder what John was thinking. What was his perspective when he looked at the cross? I just want you to let that sink in. What was he thinking? Now, I'm speculating here, but I want to go all the way back to Jesus and John at the table. In John 13, 23, it says, The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining, see what it said, next to him. You know what I think? This is just speculation. I don't think John just was sitting near Jesus. John was the youngest of all the disciples. You know what I think he did? I actually think he put his head right on the chest of Jesus, like a child. I really do. I think Jesus held him close, which means he was the last person to ever hear the heartbeat of Jesus before he stood during the cross. I think as he looked up, I think he thought about that heartbeat. And I think he thought, you know, I was with him so close just hours ago, and I heard that heartbeat, and I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to watch until he draws his last breath. Because he's no longer just Jesus, my Savior. This is my best friend. I think that was John's perspective. And I can't imagine what he was thinking as he watched Jesus literally walk out of his life. So in these next few moments, I want us to go to the foot of the cross. I want us to think about what that would have been like. And in these next couple minutes, I just want you to kind of take your heart and your mind there, and then Claudia is going to share from you the perspective of Mary from the cross. Oh my goodness, I have two boys, and I can barely breathe when I watch that, when I think of what Mary had to watch her son go through. But you know, you don't have to be a mom to relate to that moment. Haven't we all stood by helpless, exhausted with pain and grief, watching somebody go through something awful? I love how John, who was an eyewitness to this whole thing, describes where Mary was during this in John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. 
near. Mary was near. Mary, in the moment, in this hardest moment of her life, stays as close to Jesus as she could possibly get. The most natural place for her to be. It reminded me of a, of a time when my son John turned 16 and first got his driver's license. You know what a scary thing that is for parents anyway. And he had an accident and was rushed to the emergency ward at Bloomington Hospital. And um, I found myself standing beside his bed with the doctor saying that he had a broken or bruised sternum. And it was dangerous. They were worried about him. And he was in a room with three people because there was an overcrowded problem in the hospital. So the nurse came in and said, um, excuse me, Mrs. Mitchell, but you'll have to leave because they're just an overcrowding problem and there's too many people and you have to leave. And I wrapped my fingers around the rail on that bed and looked her in the eye and said, I'm not going anywhere. So a little bit later, the doctor came in. Mrs. Mitchell, uh, the nurses sent me in to let you know that we have a policy here at Bloomington Hospital. When the rooms are full, the parents have to leave. I wrapped my hand around that. And I said, looked him right in the eye, said, picture this, a cat on a screen door. <laughs> I'm not leaving. Well, it was interesting. Somehow they found a private room for us, and they moved John in. I think they were a little afraid of the mother bear that came out of me. There was nowhere I was going to be but as close to John as I could get. I get this. You know, Mary wanted to be near Jesus not just only because he was son, but because she was growing up with him and his faith. And I get that, too, because my kids grew me up with faith. Anyone who have kids, say me, too, if you've experienced that. You just, yeah, you grow up with your kids as they grow in faith. So Mary was close to Jesus. You know, I think it's something for us to remember in our times, those hard times that we all face when God is silent. Don't you hate those times? God is silent or he seems inactive or you don't understand and you ask, where are you, God? What is happening? Why, God? Mary gives us exactly what we should do in those times. Stay as close to Jesus as we can. Stay near. Picture yourself as a cat on a screen door. Stay near to Jesus in those times. I wonder if possibly Mary, as she was standing there, remembered Jesus' words when he was preaching. And he said, if you have faith just as tiny as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. I wonder if Mary remembered that. I wonder if Mary's faith grew in that moment where she didn't understand. But she said, God, I believe you are who you say you are, and I believe you can do what you say you can do. Oh, friends, when we're facing those times, if we can have just that tiny bit of faith to say, God, I don't understand, but I believe. I believe you are who you say you are. Mountains can move. Because God promises to come near to us. I think it's interesting, James, Jesus' brother, was not there. That had been hard on Mary, too. His brother wasn't there. We don't really know why. Did he not really believe at that time? Was he scared and hiding? He wasn't there. But he, later on, he writes a letter. And in the fourth chapter, I think it's around the eighth verse, James says, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Interesting. Wonderful. Mary talked to her son about that moment. There are so many profound things going on in this moment, in this scripture, right in the middle of God's plan coming to fulfillment. 
But the next words Jesus spoke to Mary are so significant, they impact this church, this family, and you and I personally in this moment over 2,000 years ago. Jesus said, when he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, dear woman. Now, I think he said woman because those of you who are moms know if he just said mama, it broke her heart. Even now, every once in a while, my grown boys call me mama, and it just makes my heart skip a beat. I don't think Mary could stand to hear that. The other thing is, he said woman because of the words he was about to say. Woman, here is your son. And I think he probably pointed to John, who the scriptures tell us was nearby. Not near, but nearby. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, beneath the cross, when we gather together in church in the name of Jesus, we are a family. We look at each other and we recognize, there's my sister, there's my brother, there's my mother. I talked to a woman at 9 o'clock who's lost her husband, and she's here because she said, I, church is the best thing of the week for me because I get to be with my family. And it feels my loss. That's church. And in his worst moment of agony on the cross, Jesus looked down at us today and said, your family, care for each other, love each other. From that time on, we're family. Christ followers never, never stop being family. And it changes us so much when we love each other, when we come together and love each other and we experience God's glory. We leave this place with supernatural fingerprints touching everything we are, everything we touch. We leave this place with hope in our words everywhere we go. And we leave this place with every step we take filled with the resurrected power of Jesus loving the world around us because we've been together as a family and been reminded of that. I love what Dallas Willard says. This is my favorite Dallas Willard quote. Church is supposed to be a tsunami of glory every Sunday. Christians never meet one-on-one. -on -one. They always meet under the presence of Christ. When we come together as a family and love each other, what happens is we begin to look like Jesus. And there's nothing better than that. It causes a tsunami of glory that changes us and everyone we know and everyone we touch. So I love the West Side. I love the family here. And I love what's happening I got here early this morning, and there's prayer everywhere. There's people praying early. There's prayer rooms. There's prayer stations. People are preparing food for their family, getting ready for the family to come and love each other. This is a great place. So I pray that together we will begin to glorify God by the way we love him and love each other in this place.